In our series in the book of Ezra so far, we've covered the first four chapters. Lord willing, we'd like to continue this series right through the book of Nehemiah as well. In chapter 1 of Ezra, we saw how Cyrus the Great of Persia conquered Babylon and released the Jewish exiles, giving them not only permission, but also encouragement to return to Jerusalem and its surrounding area to rebuild the temple so they could worship the Lord there. In chapter 2, we are given a list of the first wave of Jews that packed up and headed toward home. Special mention was made of the priests and Levites that were part of the migration. We noted that this was only a small percentage of the Jews in Babylon. Most chose to remain in comfortable captivity. In chapter 3, as instructed by God, the Jews rebuilt the altar so they could begin sacrificial services as prescribed by Moses. Once the altar was completed and worship resumed, they laid the foundation for the temple. Some folks wept because they knew it wouldn't measure up to Solomon's temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Others shouted for joy that the temple work had begun. In chapter 4, enemies show up and devise all sorts of schemes to discourage the workers and stop the work. Ezra shows us that the enemies were persistent in their opposition for the entire rebuilding project. Today we will begin chapter 5, in which Ezra jumps back to the beginning of the building of the temple to tell us in more detail what was taking place during this important time. As we go through our message this morning, I want you to be thinking about the principles of encouragement that God lays out in the text for us. We are going to spend a majority of our time this morning looking at the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, but I don't want you to just hear the information and think that was an interesting history lesson, or worse, that was a boring history lesson. <laughs> when I read the first verse of chapter 5, the first question that came into my mind was, why did God send two prophets to the Jews at this time? Surely one man could easily have brought these messages from the Lord to the people. In many ways, that's the question I was trying to answer while I was studying this week. And I think I came to a satisfactory, if certainly not a complete, answer. And along the way, I discovered some other valuable gems that I'm honored to share with you this morning. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word this morning. We're so grateful that it is unchanging, that it is an absolute anchor we can lock our lives to and be secure. 
In a world that is increasingly turbulent, we sense the depth of the solidity of the truth of your word more and more in our lives. Help us to cling to this anchor. Help us to cling to our Savior, our hope and our joy. Help us to look constantly to the work that Christ accomplished once and for all on the cross and to look longingly toward the day when we can be face to face with the one who delivered us. This morning, I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I titled today's message, A Very Present Help. And I took that phrase from Psalm 46, verse 1. God, seeing that opposition and enemies have arisen against his work in Jerusalem, sends two prophets to encourage the workers. The words of the prophet Haggai to the returned exiles are found in the Old Testament book that bears his name. We know little about the man, Haggai, except that he was a prophet that lived around the time in history when the returned exiles were beginning to build the temple. There are hints in the text that he may have been one of the elderly Jews that had seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. We are given no genealogies or occupations. We are simply told that he was a vessel that bore the word of the Lord to his people. He had no dreams. He had no visions. There was nothing flashy, nothing spectacular. He simply delivered the plain and powerful word of the Lord to the people. I like Haggai. He is a down-to-earth fellow that the Lord used. Gives me a little bit of hope. Haggai gives a series of five messages from the Lord over about a four-month period. Isn't it interesting that this man, he was likely upwards of 70 years old, and he was not a prophet decade after decade after decade after decade, and he grew old, and toward the end of his life, God spoke to the people through him for about four months, and that was it. God used him exactly the way he wanted to use him, and Haggai was faithful. These five messages I've summarized for you in the outline over about four months. The first message that he gave them was, consider your ways. The exiles had begun well. They had built the altar and laid the foundation for the temple. Then due to the pressure and discouragement they faced, they stopped building for about nine to 15 years. It's a little bit hard to tell from the text exactly how long, but it looks like it was at least a decade. Then they began to build houses for themselves, but nothing they were doing was fruitful. When they planted, it didn't grow. The houses didn't stay the way, they, the way that they wanted them to. Nothing was working the way they expected. Then along came Haggai. His first message to the Jews was to get their priorities aligned correctly. Already, they had forgotten all that the Lord had promised regarding this new temple, the Messiah, and his kingdom's future glory. The second message he gave them 
is, I am with you. So immediately after Haggai told the people, consider your ways, the people obeyed the word of the Lord through Haggai. And now, three weeks later, their immediate obedience brought this message of blessing. I am with you, says the Lord. The third message is an encouragement for the Jewish leaders. This message of encouragement from the Lord about a month later had three main pillars. He tells the leaders to be strong, to work, and to fear not. Furthermore, the Lord gives the people hope through a prophecy of a coming Messiah in chapter 2, verse 7 of Haggai. This verse is notoriously difficult to translate, but ancient Jewish rabbis and early Christian fathers believed this verse to be pointing to the Messiah. If they were right, and we have very good reason to think they were, God was going to fulfill his promise to the Jews from this very spot. Whether this was fulfilled when the Lord Jesus visited the temple during his life on earth, bringing God's Shekinah glory veiled in flesh before the temple's destruction in AD 70 or not, is a matter of some debate. Personally, I think this prophecy had a partial fulfillment during the earthly life of Christ, but the wording is sufficiently broad to include a complete and future fulfillment in the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes to set up his kingdom on earth. The fourth message is a message of blessing for all the people. He says, I will bless you. Again, about a month after the third message, the fourth and fifth messages came through Haggai. In this fourth message of Haggai, the Lord poses an interesting question. Is holiness communicated by contact? The, the people correctly answered, no. Uncleanness is communicated to the clean by contact. Ask any mother whose child has just wiped his dirty hands on his clean pants. Not only are the pants now unclean, but the heart of the mother because becomes somewhat heated. When holy and unholy come into contact, both are unholy. In the physical realm, we understand this intuitively. In the moral or spiritual realm, the evil heart of man cannot become holy by being in a holy place. Haggai makes the application to the Jews. Although they had returned to the land, their hearts would not be made clean by a change of location. Furthermore, if they were going to build the holy temple with unclean hands, so to speak, that would also not make them holy. It was an exhortation to the people to first present themselves with clean hands and a pure heart before the Lord. Once they were made clean by the Lord, then they would be enabled to do the work. It's the same theme we saw earlier in the book of Ezra as well. First, build the altar where sin is dealt with. Then, the rest of the work can commence.
As Christians, our altar is the cross. That's where we first go. Hebrews 13.10 Our enabling is the Holy Spirit. The fifth and final message came on the same day as the fourth message, and it was a message to Zerubbabel. And he said this, I have chosen you. The last four verses of Haggai would have been difficult for the original readers or hearers to understand if they were not familiar with the writings of Jeremiah. Was Zerubbabel the Messiah? We will talk about this more in a future message, but I think we need to look briefly at Jeremiah 22 to see the significance of Haggai's final prophecy. Coniah was the evil king of Judah, of the line of David, that could have been in the messianic line of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was so wicked that God removed this honor from him. God uses the picture of plucking the signet ring off his finger to show that Coniah would not be an ancestor of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read Jeremiah 22 and verses 24 through 30. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out, and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Okay. So Coniah is the signet ring that God has plucked from his hand. He would not be the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then let's read the final verse of the book of Haggai. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And to the best of my knowledge, Zerubbabel was the final person in the genealogy of Jesus Christ who was in the ancestry of both Joseph and Mary, the mother of the Lord. I want to pause for a moment and consider this idea of a signet ring because I think the New Testament offers an incredible depth of insight on this concept. 
A signet ring was worn by ancient kings as a stamp of authority. On it was a unique pattern reserved for the king's ring. If the king pressed his ring into a wax seal or a clay tablet, it carried the full weight of his authority. Whatever words were stamped with the king's signet ring were as if they were the very words of the king. The authority was absolute. To disregard the king's signet brought the death penalty. To attempt to forge the signet brought the death penalty. To remove the king's signet from any document brought the death penalty. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes that Jesus Christ, whom God calls the Son of His love, two verses earlier, is the image of the invisible God. It is as if God pressed Himself into clay. Recall Genesis 2. And although the first Adam smeared God's image with his sin, which he passed on to all of us, resulting in the death penalty, the second Adam came, Jesus Christ, the exact image, the exact signet of God, but this time perfect and sinless as only God can be. God's signet moved through generation after generation for thousands of years until finally the stamp was made in Jesus of Nazareth the exact image of the invisible God. And that's the power of this idea of God's signet ring through Zerubbabel. Hage was a prophet of practicality. His message was basically this. God has given you a job to do. Now do it. Do it because there is hope. All his prophecies concerned the building of the temple of the Lord. And as suddenly as he appears, Haggai disappears from the biblical record. He sought no accolades. He wanted no special attention. The biblical record says that he not only spoke the word of the Lord to the people to encourage them, but then he rolled up his sleeves and got to work as well. My studies this week have given me a new appreciation for this humble man of God. And I hope the same is true for you this morning. If the only prophecies we had from this time were Haggai's, we might get the impression that the only thing that mattered to God at this time was that the temple be reconstructed. But God also sent the young priest, Zechariah, Haggai, the elderly gentleman, Zechariah, the young fellow, in the priestly line. Zechariah's prophecy is also recorded for us in the book of Zechariah. It is much longer and strikingly different in character from Haggai's. The book is filled with visions, prophecies, signs, heavenly visitors, and the voice of God. But it is also spiritually practical 
dealing with issues like repentance, God's tender care for his people, salvation, and holy living. It seems that we can divide Zechariah into two main parts. Chapters 1 through 8, covering about two years, were about this time of rebuilding that we're discussing in our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. And chapters 9 through 12, coming much later. Haggai's prophecy was a more direct encouragement to get busy on the work of the temple. Zechariah's prophecy was more directed to the spiritual condition of the returned exiles. Let's briefly summarize the first eight chapters of Zechariah as they are the chapters that we are concerned with in our study of Ezra. The first six verses of Zechariah are a call to repentance. Zechariah began prophesying about two months after Haggai started, somewhere between Haggai's third and fourth prophecy. So he came alongside Haggai in calling the Jews to examine their hearts and turn to God. Zechariah then goes on to relate eight visions God gave him. The first, he talks about a man among the myrtle trees. Then he talks about four horns and four craftsmen. Then a man with a measuring line. Then the cleansing of the high priest. He talks about a gold lampstand and two olive trees. He talks about a flying scroll. And he talks about a woman in a basket. And... <clears throat> Four chariots. We unfortunately don't have the time to go over each of these visions in detail, but there is a recurring theme. Many begin with past or current events and conclude by pointing to the future coming Messiah. Chapter 6 ends with a parable regarding the coronation of the high priest, Jeshua, the friend and partner of Zerubbabel. Just as an aside for your own study, and I found this so helpful and striking, really. Visions 1 and 8, the man among the myrtle trees and the four chariots, they're a pair. They are paired together intentionally. Also, 2 and 7 are paired together. 3 and 6 are paired together. 4 and 5 are paired together. And then the ninth part, that parable about the parable about the priest, the crowning of the high priest, Yeshua, ties up visions four and five in a remarkable passage pointing toward Jesus Christ. And when you read them in that way, it's incredible what you see coming out about the Lord Jesus Christ in verses four and five and the crowning of Yeshua. So there's a challenge for you this week. So that's, that's chapters 1 through 6. Finally, in chapters 7 and 8 of Zechariah, men come to Zechariah with a question regarding fasting. Through Zechariah, God gives them four responses. Number one, he rebukes them for wrong motives. In verses 4 through 7, the Lord points out that the relationship between God and Israel had become 
a one-way relationship. God gave and gave and gave and gave, and the people just took. When the people fasted, they fasted for themselves. When the people feasted, they feasted for themselves. Their motives for religious practice were only selfish all the time. What can God do for me? How often have we come to church with that attitude? What can God do for me? I need to go to church to get fed. What is it that God is going to give to me? And God rebukes these folks for that same attitude. God reminds them that the prophets before the captivity, Isaiah, Jeremiah, others, told them what God required already. They didn't listen then, and they weren't listening now. One of those prophets was Samuel, who put it the most simply, in my opinion. Samuel said this, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. The second response to the question about fasting was a requirement that the Lord have for repentance. Look, you guys, I've pointed out where your failings are. Your heart is in the wrong place. It's time for you to turn. God tells the people that they must not make the same mistakes their forefathers made. They were told to turn away from disobedience toward obedience. The third part of his response was a restoration of favor. I think my favorite part in God's description of his restoration of Jerusalem is found in Zechariah chapter 8 and verses 4 and 5. And I think this verse struck me so powerfully this week because you hear this, we have to get used to the new normal. Put your mask on and be afraid everywhere you go. Make sure you're living in anxiety, distraction, and fear all of the time. And the constant phrase is, this is just going to be the way it is from here forward. It's hopeless. And then I read these verses in Zechariah chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. As the prophet was looking forward, I think, to when Jesus Christ reigns in Jerusalem. <clears throat> old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. No masks. The streets are full. Masks are not the new normal. <coughs> what Jesus Christ tells us is going to be is the new normal. Folks, we have something wonderful to look forward to, don't we? I can't imagine living without the hope that this book offers. 
When I picture children playing in the streets of Jerusalem as the elders sit and watch and maybe reflect on their long and fruitful lives, I am encouraged. God's going to make it right. The fourth response that God gives to these men in their question about fasting is this. Your fasts will become feasts. I can't help but wonder if Jesus didn't have this passage in Zechariah in his mind in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Let's read that together. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Zechariah seems to be looking beyond the days of fasting once again to the times when the people have the bridegroom with them and they feast once more. Their times of mourning have become times of great celebration. And God has promised it to us in his word. When I introduced this message, I told you that one of the questions I was trying to answer was, why did God send two prophets to encourage the people? In a nutshell, I guess my answer is this. As human beings, we have a material part and an immaterial part. They are inextricably linked during this life, and God cares about what we do with our bodies as well as what we do with our souls, so to speak. Hage encouraged the people to work. God gave the people a job to do, not just to pray about, but to do. Hage pointed out that Messiah is coming, so we must be busy, and we must cease neglecting the work of the Lord. Zechariah encouraged the people to be right with God in their hearts. With clean hands and a pure heart, through repentance and obedience, the people could make their physical work an act of worship for the Lord, the God of Israel. Zechariah pointed out that Messiah is coming, so we must submit our hearts to the Lord and serve him from the depth of our spirits. And although all of these prophecies were written to a specific people, at a specific place for a specific event, the heart of God shines through the centuries to you and I today. Christian, consider your ways. Dump the things that hinder you. God is with you. Be strong, work, fear not. God will bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You have been chosen by God in Christ to make the light of the gospel shine in a very dark world. 
And in all these admonitions, remember, Messiah is coming. Jesus Christ is coming again. All things broken will be repaired. Sorrow will be turned to joy and fasts will be turned to feasts. I'm so thankful God has given us the end of the story. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for the person of Jesus Christ who is so tender and so kind and so loving and yet was willing to endure such brutality because of his deep love for each person in this room, each person in our world. Thank you that through this once and forever act, you dealt with all our sin. I pray that we would be more mindful of this tomorrow than we are today and the day after that than we are tomorrow. That that would continue. That we would trust you better. That we would walk in the hope and light of your word. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given us the end of the story. And that no matter how dark things become, there is hope and joy and peace at the end of it all, where we will sit down and feast with our Christian family, but most of all with our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us endurance and patience through this time. Give us eyes to see the wonders that you have for us, that you have revealed to us in your word. Thank you for each person here this morning. I pray your blessing upon each one, each family. I pray your protection upon our health. I pray your protection upon this body of believers. I pray for others, Christians meeting this morning that may be under difficult and persecuted circumstances, that you would protect them, that you would guide them, that you would direct them, that you would uphold them, that you would encourage them. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.